checking in to see how things are going when it comes to the vaccination certificate and how restaurants are doing with having to make sure people who come in to dine, whether it's on a patio or inside, have that certificate. Brad McLeod is the owner and managing partner of Sea Lovers Fish and Chips, and he's joining us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Joe. Glad to be here. Uh, how are things going now that we're a few days into the, uh, this this new reality, at least for now, of people having the certificate? Um, it, it's going uh, fairly well. Uh, it's definitely uh, affected our, our business on dining. Uh, we're down probably 25 to 30 percent um, on dining. We, it, we notice uh, most of the effect is on dining. Uh, most of the customers that come in, uh, we haven't had too many problems with the customers coming in. But one thing the restaurants have found is there's there's restaurants out there that are not following these rules. And what we the ones that are following the rules, our biggest beef is that the government doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. Do you have any idea how many? Um, it's it's hard to pin down the numbers of of exactly what is. I believe it's somewhere to be between fifty and sixty in the province. Hmm. Uh, I know of several in Langley alone that I know personally that I know are not doing it. I've had other restaurant owners phone me to talk to me about it and what my feelings were on it. And I've talked to the health department about it. I've talked to the city about it. And everybody wants to point a finger in a different direction and doesn't want to take responsibility for enforcing these rules. Hmm, did and you? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. They, they need to step up and do this. If they want everyone to participate and follow this, it's a hardship on the restaurants that we've gone through numerous hardships through this and fought our way through, and now this has been put on us. But we're not getting the backing from the government. We need to enforce this to make sure everyone understands that this is not our choice. We must do it. But when they allow restaurants to not follow it and do nothing about it, what do they expect the rest of us to do? Yeah, so it seems like it's a kind of an unfair playing field. Yeah, it is. And when we contact the health department about it, we just get health department says phone bylaw. Bylaw says doesn't do it us. Phone the health department and no one's doing anything about it. And I believe that Adrian Dix and John Horgan need to step up to the plate and deal with this right away. It's blatantly obvious. You guys have covered stories of restaurants that's been on TV that are not doing this and they're still doing it. And why aren't they enforcing this? It does seem like there is a bit of a gap there, because even as this was being rolled out, I remember hearing that the the question was put to government officials, well, what happens if a a patron of a restaurant is unruly or refuses to do this? And the advice given to them was call the police. But there wasn't really any clarification on what do you do if you're someone in your position that is following the rules and knows of others that aren't. Fraser Health on their website says to contact the city bylaw. City bylaw says they have no power to do anything about it. Contact Fraser Health. Hmm. That's um. And you just go around in circles. You go around. I did it all day yesterday, and I went around in circles and got nowhere. And nobody's doing. I I haven't seen any coverage from anywhere that they've actually done anything to stop this. Did you do you get the impression at all that maybe they're they're giving restaurants a bit of a grace period to get it in in working order and to make sure that they're able to kind of transition to the scenario or this environment where they're collecting the passports? No, <laughs> I think they're just being inactive, plain and simple. It's it, it's it's it hasn't taken any of these restaurants that are choosing to do this or bars and so on have made a choice and they're making a stand. And the government, it isn't a matter about they don't have the time to do it or anything like that. They've chosen not to do it. And the government needs to step up to the plate and deal with it. End of subject. It's straightforward. Right, because I, I would imagine, too, uh, there, what would the excuse be? Restaurants like yours and several others that we've talked to, they scrambled and they had it in place. They had the, the scanners. They had the app ready. They had it in place and ready to go as soon as it came in. Yes. I mean, it, it's straightforward. And you don't. The scanners are a tool there, uh, but you, they're not required to even do this. You can visually check the passports, the vaccine registration cards right now, because they're still active. There's no one has, none of these restaurants are using the excuse saying, I haven't been able to get it in place. They're just saying they're not doing it. They've just chosen not to do it.
Right, because I've, I've even noticed that discrepancy in some, a couple, one place that they scan, the other they just checked ID. So, And I was curious about that, that if an inspector did happen to come in, it's not an actual rule that everybody that's in your restaurant, you, you have to show that you actually scanned their passport. If you visually checked it, that's okay? You're allowed to visually, you're allowed to do it visually and check their ID as well. All right. Uh, when yeah. you say the business is down 25 to 30 percent, do you think that's because of people that don't have the passport and aren't coming out or people that don't want to partake in this? Maybe they have privacy concerns or for whatever reason. I'm not sure. I couldn't pinpoint that, to be honest with you. I'm not sure what it is. I hope it's going to come back. I think it's more of a mixture of people that aren't sure about it. Uh, it's just like when all the rules came into play over the last two years. People usually stand back and see what's happened and then get comfortable with going out once they see what's happening. Uh, and that I couldn't give you a dead answer on what it is. Sure. Um, I think it's a mixture of all of those items. How are things going then as far as being a, a restaurant owner at the locations that, that you have? As far as is the public pretty understanding or are you also the target of, of people who don't like these rules and perhaps maybe don't like the fact that, that you're following along or you're doing what, what you're simply being told to do by officials? Well, we've, at, at our locations, we've been pretty lucky so far in regards to that that we haven't. I mean, we had quite a bit of problem way back when we had more problems with the anti-maskers and, and so on and so forth. Like our restaurant in Langley, we've replaced the door twice where it's been smashed by anti-maskers that weren't happy that they couldn't come in. Hmm. With this rollout, we haven't had the kickback as much. They seem to have stayed away. Where we have seen it is when we sent out a letter when this all started to our Sea Lovers members of our Sea Lovers Club, about 40,000 people. And I was surprised the response we got back from that from people that were quite vocal and quite abrupt with us. And most of them seemed to act like this was a choice that we chose to do, that this was something we, we could opt into or opt out of, that it's not a regulation that we must follow. And that's what we're trying to get across. Everyone needs to follow it. It's, it's the health orders. We must follow them. And the government needs to do their part to make sure everybody is following them. And the general public needs to understand we don't have a choice in this. And do you think maybe that's where some of the confusion is coming in? Because it does seem like they're completely shooting the messenger in that scenario. But like you say, if there are 50 to 60 other restaurants that you know of in that area, in the Langley area, that aren't enforcing the rule, somebody who's maybe not listening to the news or paying that close attention might think, given that, that it's optional. That's exactly what I'm trying to get across. We need to, the government needs to do their part to make sure that everyone is following it and the public knows that we have no choice in this. We must follow it. But by allowing other locations not to do it and cut corners on the rules, it looks bad on everybody else. It also seems like a really big difference when we look back to when in uh, inside dining, when dining rooms were shut down for the second time, when restaurants had to shut the doors to in-person dining, there were two restaurants in the Vancouver area that kept the doors open. They were shut down almost immediately. They were The officials jumped on that and said, you can't do this. So it seems like a, a, quite a difference now if we have another rule that, that restaurants are told you must follow this rule or face penalties and they don't appear to be doing anything. Exactly, Jill. I mean, I was astonished when that happened back when that happened with the uh, dining shutdown in the dining rooms. And then when this happened, that's what I expected to see. But then when you saw news coverage of restaurants and then you saw no coverage of them getting shut down, then you see more and more starting to do this of not following. Nothing's happening. There's been no media coverage because I don't think there has been any happening. If there has, it's been very quiet, but we can't find anybody that's doing it not following the rules, and it's been shut down or disciplined for it. All right. Well, we're going to try and get some answers on this as well and hopefully figure out why there is this lack of enforcement. But, Brad, we'll leave it there for today. I appreciate so much your time. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. All right. That is Brad McLeod, owner and managing partner of Sea Lovers Fish and Chips. Frustrated, clearly frustrated there with what he says are as many as 50 to 60 restaurants in that area alone not following the new rules regarding the vaccine certificates, the passports and making it a really, really uneven playing field. 
Well, yesterday during the health briefing, Dr. Bonnie Henry said that parents and teachers throughout the province have let it be known that they want to be more informed about exposures of COVID-19 in school settings and any possible transmission. So a new system is expected to be in place by the end of the week, and that would be a system that can notify schools in a timely way, a way that is not as intrusive as some earlier ways that were being used to inform people and one that can help parents get the access to the information that they need and to do so in a rapid way. So we're hoping or we wanted to get some reaction to this. Is this enough to ease the concerns of some parents? So joining me once again is Ronnie Sangera, the Cambridge Elementary PAC president. Ronnie, thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, What is your response? Well, first to the fact that there weren't going to be notifications. Did you or other parents have concerns about that? Yeah, so uh, I also represent Surrey DPAC. So uh, we've been hearing from parents throughout the district um, saying that that they were quite upset that the exposure letters were not going to be coming. And I think what we've been hearing all year and even last year was parents saying they want more transparency. And for them, taking the exposure letters away and just letting parents know when there's a cluster or an outbreak um, was not good enough for parents. And do you think this, I know we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but being told that there will be something in place by the end of the week, is that enough to ease those concerns? Yeah, I think that uh, most parents are really happy today that they, or yesterday, that they heard that the exposure letters were going to be back. And I know that there's some parents um, that had concerns and they had, you know, they were upset that they would be getting so many letters. And I think that was happening in in some of the high schools. But I think majority of the parents that we've heard from um, at Surrey DPAC is saying that, you know what, it's welcoming news. They're looking forward to seeing what kind of changes that they're making. But they're also hoping that the changes are more improvement. So the transparency is there. They know you know, what day the exposure happened, where in the school it happened. So they still want those um, kind of things to be um, sent home or to be emailed. And I think that, you know, especially with the Surrey School District, we have almost 200 languages that are spoken. So I think that parents would also like it if it was just not in English and they had a few more languages um, that the notices went home in as well. Uh, Because when it was done before then, was it only going out to people in English? Um, at first, it was only going out in English. So I think, you know, we're having, we live in multicultural um, homes and, and multi-generational homes. So um, it's sometimes the grandparents are picking up. And so if they're getting the notice, you know, maybe they can read it. So, you know, so it's just, it, it, again, back to being more transparent, back to being a little bit more uh, involved in how the what kind of community it is and, and who's living where. And, and that could help with the letters as well. And is it your understanding then what would happen in in the case or is it any different perhaps than last year if you do get a notice saying there was an exposure, the exposure was somebody who came in close contact with your child, does that lead to more people having to isolate or what happens in that scenario? So we don't have a lot of details. I mean, we only know as much as she had said that it's going to be rolling out. So we're hoping that you know, with Fraser Health and, and other health authorities that they're on top of it. And we know that if there is exposure in one classroom and then to have the same information going out um, like across the board. So, you know, if you're telling telling somebody to isolate for 14 days or to self-monitor, you know, those kind of um, instructions should be the same all, throughout the whole whole district so that, you know, we all, we all know what, what we're going to be expecting now. You know, we, we hope, like I said, that there's, they've got a really great plan in place by the time they, they roll this out because, you know, they've had uh, enough time to, to really think about how they were going to improve the system from what they were doing last time. Right. Does it seem a bit strange, though, that we are, we're here starting the school year or we're here we are well into the first month of the school year? Like you said, this is something that could have been decided on in the summertime. It could have been in place for the start of the school year, not something to react to what teachers and parents and those in the community have been saying uh, that they want more information. Yeah, and I think we've talked about this, Jill. We feel as, as parents and what we're hearing from parents is that 
you know, the government is always playing catch up. So they're always reacting to what's happening instead of being proactive. So they knew that, you know what, um, maybe they could have talked about this before school started and then gotten feedback from the parents or more feedback from more parents uh, and, and never had to take this away. Because, you know, the stress level, um, I think parents are saying that what we're hearing from them is that the ministry waited so long to announce their plans for back to school return that didn't even have a chance to, to voice their opinions and to say what they wanted to happen. And so taking this away um, and then now bringing it back just shows you that, you know what, parents really, their voice really does matter. And that, you know, if, if this was done before um, the school year started, then we could have been having those letters right from the beginning and the anxiety wouldn't have been that much for parents to send their kids back. Right. How is the anxiety level? Is it different, do you think, given this year, adults at least, there are adults uh, that are fully vaccinated. I know students under the age of 12 can't be, but is there less anxiety given the rates of vaccination or how are people feeling? Well, I mean, I think it's a little bit different for high school because high school kids are, are vaccinated or the ones that can be vaccinated or want to be vaccinated. But you still have to remember that elementary school kids cannot be vaccinated. So, you know, I think from talking to parents and, and stuff, we've been hearing that, you know, the parents that have their, their kids in elementary school or the kids that are under 12 and aren't vaccinated, the anxiety is still there because we don't really know how the Delta variant really affects children. We know it affects them more and the cases are, you know, higher than they were with COVID-19 originally. So I think that, you know, it's, so it's different. It's, I think uh, parents have different anxiety levels depending on, where the child is going to school, to how old their child is, and, you know, and, and how big the classrooms are or how big their school is. So, you know, there's a lot of different factors that uh, get into play here when we start looking at the anxiety for parents. So it's, it's different for everyone. Yeah, and that, that makes total sense. Uh, are you getting the sense that, that things, uh, now that we are into, uh, to, well into September, that, that things, or how are things going in the schools, or what are you hearing? So we're hearing that, you know, um, from parents that most kids are wearing their masks in class. Um, teachers are doing an amazing job of getting their students to wash their hands. They're trying to keep that, that separation between students as much as they can. Um, especially at our school, I know our teachers are taking the kids out as much as they can. Um, they're leaving their door open for, for just fresher air. So I think that everyone is really working together. Um, like if you, if you think about it at the school level, like teachers and parents and, and, and children are really are are working. And I think, you know what, we've had a year and a half, almost two years into this. So I think that everybody is kind of like, okay, we know this is is expected. We know we need to be at school. Kids need to be safe. And I think that most parents uh, and teachers are doing everything they can. And it must be somewhat comforting. I don't know if that's the right word, but this system or this notification system, however it's going to look, again, being told that it'll be in by the end of the week, uh, must be, is there some kind of relief that that will be in place as we head into the fall and winter, which is also cold and flu season? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that most parents are really happy with the news. I mean, at the end of the day, I think parents um, feel like they just need that extra control over their, their child's health so that if these exposure letters are coming and if there's, you know, say, say that one school has having more exposure letters, that gives the parent the choices that they can make. So are they going to send their child to school that week? Or, you know what, are they going to have to, um, you know, look at their child to see if there's any symptoms or pay that extra attention to, to what's going on around other parents and other, other kids around. So I think, you know what, it, 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 as much transparency as we can get from the government, that makes a parent's life easier because then we are working together instead of always trying to play guessing games. And you know what? This also takes out the the rumors or the speculations of hearing from other parents or other people or on social media. So if we can hear directly from Fraser Health or the other health authorities, that gives you a little bit more, um, like you said, it gives you a little bit more comfort of, okay, this is what's happening and and this is going to be our plan going forward. All right. We will leave it there for today. Ronnie, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Appreciate your time. 
Yeah, thank you, Jill. Appreciate coming on as well. Thank you. Let's talk more about patios. This was a topic at Vancouver City Council today, the idea of those temporary pop-up patios and making them permanent. Well, joining me now to talk more about what was decided is Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you so much for being with us again. Hi, Jill. How are you doing today? Very well. How about you? Good. Excellent. I'm happy about patios. (laughs) (laughs) I I listened to part of the council meeting. I couldn't listen to the entire thing. But what does this mean as far as these so-called pop-up or these temporary patios becoming permanent? Well, what I think it means is that we created a patio culture in the city of Vancouver, and that patio culture is here to stay. And so essentially, um, during the pandemic, uh, we got more creative about allowing businesses to use public space, um, whether it was a parking spot in front of their business or if they had um, parking stalls or on private property, um, but just the ability to create these people-friendly zones um, where people are able to gather outside and, and safely come together. And what that has created, I think, is a complete refresh and a, and a, and a sort of really fun look on how we can have a vibrant city that really puts the focus on people first. So does this change anything then as far as going from temporary to more permanent? Uh, well, it will allow um, more flexibility in uh, those uses, as I said, um, and for businesses that don't necessarily wouldn't have had access to be able to have a patio before to do so, um, whether it's through reallocation of road space, for example. Um, one of the other key changes um, that's being enacted today is permanently changing our bylaws to allow liquor manufacturers, so uh, think craft breweries or the local spirit manufacturers, to have patios as well. And that wasn't allowed before the pandemic either. You could go and sit on a patio at a craft brewery in Port Moody, for example, but you couldn't do that in Vancouver. All right. So that's a big change. So this will be then, like you mentioned, for, for both sidewalks or parking lot or parking spaces, so both private and public par- property. But from what I'm understanding, it's still a project that goes from April 1st to the end of October? No, it's going to go year-round. There will be two options that are offered to restaurants that they can choose if they just want to do something for the summertime period from October, from April to October, I should say, or if they'd like to go year-round, um, and then they can choose that option as well. Will that be a difference then in the permit costs or what it costs to businesses to do that? Yeah, it will be um, a little bit more expensive to go with the year-round option, and I, I think part of the goal here is to provide flexibility based on what the individual businesses want to do. So do you know what it will cost establishments that do want to take part in this? Yeah, it's based on a um, sort of a cost per square meter basis. So I think it starts at around $450, for example. Um, And then, you know, it could be $2,500, depending upon the amount of um, public space reallocation. I also think it's important to note that part of the work that's going to happen in the coming months is going to be a review of fees. Um, And one of the questions that I asked staff today is to ensure that we're looking at other municipalities too, that Vancouver remains competitive, that there's a fair charge um, for having the right to use that public space, but that we're competitive with other cities because we know it's, it's really expensive to be a small business in Vancouver. Right, because what does a restaurant or, or a, a brew pub or, or something get for that money other than they get to use the space, but they're going to have to put the, the tables and the chairs and make sure it's complying with whatever other rules are on the books. But what else does that money going to? Uh, well, it'll go to one of the things you'll see um, invested this year is things such as uh, additional concrete barriers to ensure safety and protect people for those patios that are curbside and are on streets. So that's really important. So, you know, the city has some costs to incur there. Um, and so that's the key one to mention. And also in a number of cases, the city is foregoing revenue um, by giving up parking spaces, um, I think for good reason, because uh, it creates, you know, as I said, you know, much more vibrant city. Um, so it's in recognition of some of those costs and some of the lost revenue. Uh, I know there was a speaker to council earlier today that brought up the issue that depending on where you're located in the city, the cost can be different and said that that wasn't really fair. It should be a flat cost throughout the city. Was that addressed? Um, so I expect that that will be part of the fee review that will be undertaken in the coming months um, to look at uh, is, does it actually make sense for downtown, which is what we're talking about, to be charged a higher rate. Um, than your other surrounding neighborhoods. And I think especially recognizing that downtown was the most hard hit by the pandemic with people working from home and, you know, it had a huge impact on those businesses. So I'll be looking to see if there's equity in that when the fee recommendations come back.
Does this do anything to change capacity? We talked to the Restaurant and Food Services Association earlier this week and talked about if your capacity is 100 people, say, and you get a temporary patio, you're able to expand. Those seats simply move to the patio. It doesn't mean that your capacity then goes up to, say, 130. Does this do anything to change that or is the capacity still set at whatever the capacity of the establishment is? Um, it, it's it's traditionally sort of a, a status quo in terms of capacity and, and occupancy because uh, those loads are set in terms of fire codes and that and based on provincial liquor licenses. So there's a number of things that factor into them. So essentially, it will be it will be similar. Um, there are some allowances within the bylaws that do allow sort of an expansion of something like 12 seats um, for a number of businesses in the summertime. Um, but we're not looking at a significant shift in in the total occupancy for a restaurant. Uh, I know one of the issues that was brought up as well was making sure that, say, sidewalks are still accessible. They're, they can get a bit crowded with tables and adding to that uh, people that maybe are using mobility devices. How do you make sure that we can have these patios and, and restaurants and pubs and such can set up these patios, but still make it so it's not an obstacle course for people to try and get around? So hugely important in terms of accessibility, and Council heard that loud and clear. Um, that's something that will be considered in a number of ways. Um, one of the things we heard from staff that was that in a number of cases, um, moving onto the curbside patios instead of having something in front of the storefront actually expanded some of the sidewalk space. Um, another way to look at addressing accessibility is when the design guidelines are put in place and it's recommended, here's what your patios can look like, that people consider things like even the, the table types. So you saw, for example, a number of picnic-style tables, um, which obviously you have to be able-bodied in order to be able to sit at. And so staff will be providing some guidance there around considerations to help ensure that uh, we're not precluding anybody from being able to visit the patios. So do you think, will there be a requirement then, say if you do, because you're right, I've seen a ton of uh, the patios that have the picnic tables. Would there be a requirement then that if you have picnic tables, you also have to have a certain number of accessible tables? Yeah, I think that uh, I think staff are, are working on those guidelines, um, and there will be a number of things, such as ensuring that there's leveling with the curb, um, for example, uh, for wheelchair access and, and other components. The temporary patio was also a, a public health measure response in terms of giving people that ability to dine safely outside. Um, and now there's a chance to refine some of those pieces and, and make sure that we're including everybody. Were the plazas as well part of this conversation where we've seen some roads closed and become those public plazas, or is that a totally different conversation? Um, it is related, um, and it was part of the motion that I brought forward to Council around the, the restaurant program and extending and making this a permanent part of summer was um, also, and, and actually, in fact, in initiating the temporary patio program in the first place, but was also to expand pop-up patios throughout the city that aren't attached to a business. And we've seen them in different neighborhoods from Granville to Maine and others. Um, And they've been hugely popular. Um, And so the intent is to continue those and expand them um, because, again, they add a lot of vibrancy. We saw them activated um, by the local business improvement associations with musicians, um, different performers, uh, you know, sometimes kids' activities. So they've been super popular. And so, yes, that's a part of our, our public life and our public space that's here to stay as well. All right. A lot of people we know that during this pandemic, a lot of people have added furry members to their families. So dogs in a lot of cases. I've noticed that the patios that are in parking spots or on the sidewalk, they are dog friendly, I think, because it's it's public property. Do you expect to see more of that as far as making patios dog friendly for people so they can come with dogs and also enjoy patios? Um, I I love the idea. I think we've got a a lot more furry friends in the city. Um, But uh, in terms of health guidelines, that's something that really falls under, you know, Vancouver Coastal Health. And and also the city doesn't have a lot of say with respect to allowing animals on patios. But I do know that there's a huge huge desire by um, someone when they're out walking their dog to try to grab a table and be able to have their pet close by. So hopefully some strides can be made there. But uh, not the city's call because that's a, that's a health choice. Right. So is it is that kind of a, a bit of a gray area then in that because of the the some the high number of patios that are on public property, it, would it still be then uh, Coastal Health could enforce it, but they're just not because it's dogs that are on uh, in places not on private property? Well, it is considered an extension of the business's operation, the restaurant's operation. So they are subject still to the health guidelines, whether it's, you know, liquor service capacity and, you know, regulations like that in terms of age. And 
and also, you know, the health guidance with respect to health and safety, food preparation, things like pets. So um, it's considered to be part of that. And so, yes, um, restaurants will have to be respectful of the current guidelines. All right. What happens next then uh, with as far as deadlines and businesses that maybe want to apply for patios for an extension? Maybe they want to go the year round route with this decision today. What happens next? Um, So there will be a a pretty um, detailed section of information that will be provided um, on the City of Vancouver website, including some um, clear straightforward designs for people that want to go with the the quick and and easy with the pop-up patio. And then there's a a more detailed process if somebody wants to invest in having a permanent patio. All right. We will leave it there for today. Councillor Kirby Young, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Always a pleasure. Well, yesterday on the program, we were talking about the project that would take SkyTrain through Surrey and into downtown Langley City. And there were many reports saying that the project has been delayed. This in a report that was going to TransLink. The mayor of Surrey released a statement saying that news of the delay was disconcerting. So where does the project actually stand? Well, Langley City Councillor Nathan Pahal is joining me now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, great chatting with you. Well, we talked about this on the program yesterday. We were chatting with the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. We also had that statement from the mayor of Surrey saying that the delay in the Surrey-Langley SkyTrain opening is disconcerting. You have a different take on that. What is your take on what's happening with this particular project? Yeah, so the original business case, which was completed in January 2020, was to build the line to Fleetwood. And the date for that was 2025. Now, the BCNDP promised during the fall election last year that they'd get the line built as one phase to Langley City. They've since um, delivered on that promise insofar as they added a reservation for funding in the budget 2021. And also the federal government, um, the Liberals announced as part of their, I guess, suite of... um, funding goodies for their election in the summer to get it built as well. So we have funding promised and secured by the province and the feds. Now, the detailed design work was never completed from Fleetwood to Langley City. From what I understand and from what I know, that's being done right now, as well as the business case to get it done to Langley City. The business case is supposed to be completed this winter or early spring. At that time, it'll be approved and um, they'll be putting out a tender So that tender RFP process takes probably around a year just because it is a complicated project. I expect that to be issued to the successful proponent in the winter of 2022 uh, or 23, sort of early in the year, and then construction can start. Like the Canada line, it's going to be probably about four years to build. I remember asking this question a few years back, you know, what happens if we had the perfect path to get this, you know, funding lined up early 2020? And even TransLink staff to me at the time were sort of saying the 2025 timeline was very, very optimistic. Also, you should know that this project is being delivered through TI Corporation. That's the same provincial crown corporation that built the uh, Portman extension, Highway 1 extension, and expansion. So it's actually shifted from TransLink, who did the original business case, to the province, who is doing the new business case. Uh, projects like this are often <clears throat> delayed, though. So do you think then, when, when we hear from the mayor that uh, he also said in his statement yesterday that the city of Surrey is moving full speed ahead on its portion of work getting uh, this SkyTrain built, then is, is it the parties working together? or Because it does seem like he also is, is suggesting or, or saying that there is a delay. Yeah, I can't speak to what's going on in Surrey, but I know in Langley City, certainly things are full steam ahead. And we're the end of the line or start of the line, depending on your perspective. So if work is actively ongoing in Langley City, uh, it needs to go through Surrey. So all I know is that uh, the province has definitely been engaged with our city staff. And I know that this project is definitely full steam ahead from everything I've seen. And I know that from the conversations that Langley City Council's had with our MLA, um, he's uh, very, very optimistic about the project as well. So I haven't seen anything to indicate that this project's delayed from my perspective um, as a councillor in Langley City.
What about the funding? And did the federal election play into that at all in that we had various promises from the federal leaders? But as far as you know, is all of the funding and the cost shared between the different levels of government, is it there and has it been committed to the project? Yeah, so the big gap in the project was the federal component. We were expecting that component, um, but we didn't see it until the summer. So with that secured, it means that the project um, can continue fully funded. Uh, The detailed design work, because of the costs associated with that, could have happened regardless of a federal funding commitment. Now, what does need to be worked out to be transparent is the regional um, sort of component and how that's going to look. So the funding that's on the table will allow the line to be built. But of course, there's the negotiations of how we pay for the operating costs and some of those ongoing things. So that's yet to be worked out. And are you concerned at all with that yet to be worked out that the price tag will go up or there could be some disagreements on how to best pay for that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've sort of seen the, the, this with every project when it comes to public transportation in Metro Vancouver, where it sort of always seems like there's going to be a challenge on the regional level. But I know our region always comes together. And that happened, you know, with the, the line over Coquitlam, the Evergreen Extension, Canada Line. Uh, so I am very confident about this. This is a, also a key, key commitment uh, from the NDP. Um, and I believe that's the reason why they actually got elected uh, in Langley. So I know they're highly motivated to get it done. I know that for me as a councillor, I can't speak on behalf of the rest of council, highly motivated to get it done. And as you can see uh, in Surrey, they're highly motivated. So there's a lot of motivated people here looking to get SkyTrain built to Langley City. So I have no doubt it will. Do you think that this is the right technology? And and I mean, not that it would we would be going back or anybody would be going back and, and changing their minds or, or going in a different direction. But do you think SkyTrain is the right technology to be for this project? I mean, it was originally uh, light rail. Obviously, it switched to SkyTrain. Uh, I was on the record of being a proponent of light rail. Um, I think that it, you know, is a more value, uh, more value-added proposition. But that being said, um, SkyTrain is the technology that the majority of people in Metro Vancouver want. I think surveys have said that. Uh, so that's something that I'm going to support. I don't think it makes any sense at this time to be, you know, trying to swap technologies. Uh, let's stick with SkyTrain. Uh, the business case for it is still strong, so I'm just happy to move forward with that. And so wh- what date do you think then, because with, with the word delay being used so much, at what point or what year do you think this project will be complete and will have SkyTrain connecting to Langley City? I would love to see it completed in late uh, 2027, uh, early 2028. Uh, I'm being optimistic. But that's that's what I would love to see this project completed by. And that date, then you would not you wouldn't consider that to be a delay. Oh, absolutely not. And if you look at the original mayor's vision, it's actually right on sketch. It's actually a little bit earlier than what the original mayor's vision was as far as getting rapid transit to Langley City. So, from our perspective, I should say, from my perspective as a Langley City resident and councillor, um, it's right on time for our community. And what are you hearing from constituents as far as people wanting this technology? And what kind of a difference do you think it will make in in that community and, and getting people perhaps even out of their vehicles and using SkyTrain? It is transformative. And I know people want it in our community. More than 80% of people in our community want to see SkyTrain built to Langley City. It is transformative. We're actually going through the process of doing a new official community plan. And that basically said density where we build shops and housing apartments. We've built the highest density or we're proposing to put the highest density around the two stations in Langley City. So for our community, it's changed our complete planning vision over the next 30 years. And do you think the pandemic will change things as well? We talked about this yesterday and some callers into the show uh, talked a bit about more people working from home. Will there still be a demand, do you think, for these large rapid transit projects? Yeah, so I think it's actually a really good opportunity because right now transit's been designed around getting people at that sort of peak periods on the weekdays. And that's actually really tricky to plan and budget for. What I see in the future is more like the service you see on Saturdays and Sundays where you have a sort of nice um, 
nice smooth amount of ridership throughout the day, sort of a gentle increase at steady, then it dips in the evening. And I think you would probably agree that SkyTrain is very valuable on the weekend. All right, Nathan, so good to chat with you. Thank you so much for doing this today. We'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. So thanks again for your time. No problem. Have a great rest of your day. Well, we started the program talking with Brad McLeod, who is the owner and managing director of Sea Lovers Fish and Chips. And he was talking about how it's very frustrating for a restaurant that is enforcing the new rules that patrons must be vaccinated and show proof of that vaccination as well as ID before coming in, saying it's frustrating to do that, but then get backlash from people saying, well, other restaurants aren't doing this, so why are you? And also frustrating that there doesn't appear to be a lot of enforcement when it comes to that. Well, my next guest is here to talk about that as well. Walter Wolf is the owner of the Fresco Inn restaurant in Surrey, and Walter is on the line with us. Thanks so much for joining the program today. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, how are things Thank going? You for putting me on. Yes, we're yes, you're on the air with us now, Walter. Okay, good. Thanks for doing this. I know it's a busy day. How are things going as far as what are you doing at your restaurant when it comes to requiring proof of vaccination? Well, I don't ask for proof of vaccination because the biggest restaurants, McDonald's, A and W, Burger King, Wendy. Even BC Ferries, they don't ask. So why I should ask? All the right. Biggest, the biggest restaurant is McDonald's. And I modeled my restaurant, send what they're doing. I got plastic glass, 20 feet of plastic. All my people are behind plastic glass. And the customer... He does his own his, his own waitress, like I say. You know, we got no waitress. You don't have service staff. We got self-service. Self-service. Yeah. You put your order in, and then you get a buzzer. And when your food is ready, you come up and you pick it up in a certain station. You know, where, yep. where you pick up the food. So we got no waitresses. The liquor license, I don't know. I suspended my own liquor license. I I got everywhere signs, no liquor, no liquor, no liquor. Because the liquor law, you must have waitress. Okay. So if I give up my liquor license, I don't know. I don't see the point. Why I should have, you know, like, go with the rules. Did you give up your liquor license then so you wouldn't have service staff so you would be able to operate without requiring proof of vaccination? Yes, um, yeah, because for liquor, you need a waitress. Right. And if I don't got it, I I don't need the waitress. So technically, the way your restaurant, the Fresco Inn, is classified at this point, even so without the liquor license, are you in a position where you are like McDonald's or Wendy's, like the restaurants that aren't required to ask for proof of vaccination? Or are you still required and you're choosing not to do it? Well, I tell you, nobody ever talks to me. I had phone calls and I explained them the same way. But I, I tell them to come down and talk to me personal, but uh, not even 30 seconds. I don't even know what to ask. Do I have to ask the name or something? I don't know. Right. So, so when you say you're getting phone calls, are you talking about you're getting phone calls from customers or you're getting phone calls from enforcement officials? I, I think it, it was a little bit enforcement. Enforcement. We're in- Surf BC, I don't know who's Surf BC. I don't know who they are. Uh, what were they asking you? Well, they asked me why I don't ask for vaccination. Mm. The same question you asked me. And I told them, I said, all my people are behind plexiglass. And, and we, we, I'm a law of being, but why not the big companies? Why they are, don't have to ask? Isn't this isn't this a 
restaurant is restaurant, so the big companies write it on as them. Right. And the difference being, at least what we've been told at this point, is when you talk about the fast food restaurants, the McDonald's, the Wendy's, the fast food, that because it's not, there aren't, there isn't table service, there's not service staff, and that people tend not to spend as much time. Although I think you could debate that. There are some people that spend a lot of time in those restaurants. So is it for you that you think it's unfair that those restaurants are exempt from this, but a restaurant like yours, you're technically supposed to require your customers to be vaccinated? Well, when I wrote about this, does they exempt from the from asking? I said I model my restaurant exactly what they are. They, they don't specify the food. Okay, we're selling food, you know, like we're saying different food, but uh, that's how it is. Hmm. Did so? Did you lay off staff, or did you have staff working as servers and serving alcohol, and and you don't have that anymore? Uh, uh, no, I I give them different positions. You give them different positions. Yeah, I I don't lay anybody off. Okay. Not not even under the you know when we were shut down, I was twice shut down. You know. I stole lots of money away, you know, in the $50,000 when we were shut down because the first time it was on a Friday when they shut us down. And on a Friday night, we're the fullest. Hmm. We got five cases of letters and this and that and this, and they could throw everything in the garbage. You're talking about when they shut down all indoor dining. All the yeah. indoor dining. Yeah. Not this wasn't a shutdown specifically to your restaurant. You're talking about the the across the board shutdown. The indoor dining, but I shut that. I shut down then completely. I didn't have uh, to go because in my operation is a big operation, you know, and it's not worth it for only takeout. Right. What are you hearing from customers? Are customers pleased that you're not requiring or you're not asking for the vaccine certificates? Or what are they saying to you? It's it's a mixed, mixed, uh, you know, some are pleased, some are not pleased. But I think they're more pleased than not pleased. Because what I can see, I got McDonald's right, right as neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, busy. They are busy. You know, all these places, what I mentioned, they are still busy. And they don't ask for vaccination. So I think it might, you know, the people. And I don't know if they are vaccinated. Some, they tell me, oh, I got two vaccinations. I say, that's very good. I got two vaccinations, too. <laughs> I, you know, I go with the law. Is it? It must be a financial hit for you, though, to voluntarily give up your liquor license. Well, it is, but then it isn't because I still can operate like we want to. But what happens if somebody orders has is used to coming into your restaurant is used to having whatever their meal is with a glass of wine or a beer? What happens oh, yeah. when they come in now? Oh, yeah. But I had lots of customers, and they say you support me. That's what I want to say to all my customers. Thank you. I get very good support. I'm 50 years in business, and I got steady people and steady people, and they can cut out the liquor for a while. Has your business changed at all as far as uh, ha- have things changed since the vaccine certificate became mandatory for restaurants? I I think I'm still the same way busy. Our restaurant is always a busy restaurant and we are, we are still the same way quite busy. It didn't drop off. Right. It didn't drop off. No, it didn't drop off. Why and not? Why not just make the have the requirement? Why not make sure that customers have been vaccinated if this is what has been put out there to try and prompt more people to do this? Well, I would like to do it, but I want to see everybody 
And the biggest restaurant change, I would like to see them doing it too. Why I'm as an individual guy, I'm not a franchise or anything, you know, why, why they want me to do it? And my neighbor McDonald's, Burger King, A&W, they don't have to do it. Right. And so if they didn't drop off. No. So if they had to do it, if it was across the board, any restaurant, doesn't matter. I would do it. You would do it. I'm a very low opinion person. But what I I only think the government should say, okay, we let you go in the restaurant, but we come like speeding ticket. We go in the restaurant and we ask you who got it. Everybody knows you got to have it. And if you don't got it, then they give you a ticket. Give him a $500 ticket. I don't care, really. But if everybody is in the same boat, you know, like SkyTrain, you go and sign them. If you don't want to pay for them, you don't pay. But if they catch you, boom. Then you pay. But why the, why the government would let us make the dirty work? Uh, how long ago did you voluntarily give up your liquor license? Right from day one. Right from day one, when the vaccine certificate came into place? Yeah. Okay. Right from day one. Because I, I had to do a business decision. Right. You know, and my decision, it was, you know, when, when I'm still upset about it. BC Ferry, no, nobody asked for vaccination. That's the government. Are, are you concerned? I, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, that you've voluntarily given up your liquor license. I mean, technically, I would think you still have it if you wanted to use it. Are you concerned that you could be fined if an, an enforcement or an inspector comes into your restaurant and sees that you're, you're allowing people in without proof of vaccination? Well, I would fight it so much as I can mm-hmm. because I don't feel... It's it's an even law for restaurants. You know, if the biggest restaurants, if they don't ask, and I modeled my restaurant like McDonald's and everything, well, I, you know, we all got rights. And I think I would look for different rights. All right. Walter, we're going to leave it there for today, but I do appreciate you coming on the show and to to give us your point of view and explain what you're doing, essentially modeling after a fast food restaurant to to get to 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 make the point of not having to follow these rules. Uh, Walter, thanks so much. We'll probably check back with you at some point, but I do appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. And all the best. And all my customers, thank you very much. Well, there has been another big chunk of rock that has fallen from the Stoamis chief. This time it was caught on camera and residents in the area also report hearing a loud thundering, actually feeling the earth move a little bit when that big piece of rock came crashing down. So what is causing this to happen? Paul Adam is joining us once again, manager at the Center for Natural Hazards Research at SFU. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Nice to be with you again. Uh, we talked to you, I think, when the first bit of, or more, the most recent kind of first chunk of rock fell off the Stoamis Chief. Are you concerned at all, or should we be concerned that there have been, I think, three more incidents of this happening? Uh, yes and no. I mean, like all these things, they go in phases, and things have been falling off the Chief for as long as I've been visiting the Chief. So it's not all that new. We've had a couple of big ones this year which is unusual, but we've had a couple of big ones in past years, too. So what do you think is causing this? There, ultimately, it's gravity. The chief consists of various layers of rock on the west-facing parts of it, and like a cake turned on its side, they slip off every once in a while. On the north end, where the most recent one occurred, there's a lot of uh, wedging of fracture lines in the rock, primarily caused by trees and freeze-thaw, and they've just reached a point where they fall off, uh, exasperated in this case by extreme heat and uh, a lot of water to make things a little more fluid at this point in time. 
And when you say extreme heat, then is this perhaps the aftermath or when we look at the intense temperatures that we saw at the end of June, that heat dome, is that something that is uh, that is contributing to this? It's it's adding it's another factor that accelerates it by how much, you know, it might be five minutes, it might be five days, it might be five years, but it, it doesn't help. And you mentioned water as well, and we're going into kind of the rainier season. So should we be concerned then with more rainstorms coming that they could lead to more pieces of rock falling off? Again, they will, they, another factor will increase it. Um, but some of those pieces, I, I was reading a number of these climbers articles and, you know, they were saying it was loose anyways, mm. the one that fell the other day. And I was reading another one from 40 years back, which was near the one that occurred in June and the climber, one of whom was a PhD in geology, you know, was saying was how it was being held there was beyond his imagination. So uh, the rock, the water will just help it along, as will freezing and thawing in, in the winter if we get a cold winter. So oh. nature's working its way. Right. I guess people should be reassured then, you're talking about if one of the climbers had a PhD in geology, but was still climbing there, that kind of gives you a little reassurance that it's still okay to climb. But should people be concerned if they are climbing in that area, knowing that there are pieces of rock that have that have come crashing down? That have potential. In the, if you're in an area which it's fallen recently, I'd, be ex- I'd tend to avoid it because there's still going to be a lot of debris left there coming down for who knows how long, you know. Uh, but in terms of areas where there hasn't been a recent major fall, you know, it's going to be more a question of luck than anything else. But if I wouldn't go near the north walls or near the Black Dyke right now, and probably not for a few years. For a few years? Yeah, it depends on how much debris is left behind. I mean, I know of a case in the Selkirks on Mount Sir Donald, which everybody sees when they do the Trans-Canada. It fell down there, you know, 20 years later, they were still a lot of debris on the ledges, which means there's more stuff that could come down or you could knock it down. So, you know, you want it to wash off, so to speak. Right. That makes sense. Uh, some of the residents there talked about, they heard the the rumble, they heard the thundering noise, the houses in the area shook. And I think it also, it actually did register as a, as an earth shaking event as far as, as like se- seismology uh, equipment. But does that have have an impact as well? Obviously, this wasn't caused by an earthquake, but it, it caused the earth to shake. Does that have a ripple effect? It can. I mean, the Hope slide many years ago, the question was, did the quake occur first or was the slide the result of uh, the quake a result of the slide? So that's part of it. And the earthquakes will accelerate the process. You know, you get a big enough one and it will fall down um, on there. So, you know, but we, we're trying to measure them. We're putting small seismographs in there. Uh, as we can. And, you know, we've just started that this summer so we can see how big these are. We can tell whether it's a magnitude one earthquake, a magnitude two earthquake, that the result of the, the shaking that comes down. And you mentioned too, so avoiding the areas where we've seen this happen on the chief, and I know officials are asking people to avoid those areas as well, but how do we know that it's not going to start happening in other areas of the chief, maybe that where we haven't seen the rock fall to this point, how do we know or do we know that that's not also, that that could become the next place where rocks fall? Two things, we don't know, and it's a question of you know being in the right time and the wrong place, so to speak. The other thing is that the centers putting together a, a program, a research pro, uh, project idea, with the idea of measuring uh, the underlying structure of the rock. I, I'm going up there with a master's student on the weekend, and part of his thesis is going to work on, you know, what, what underlies it. We'll use LIDAR, which is ground-penetrating radar, to determine, you know, how many layers there, roughly how strong they are, etc. And then eventually down the road, we'll be able to say, this area's got a higher probability than that area. That's, you know, years down the road, a few years down the road. Does it happen more so at certain times of day, or is it? does it depend on what the temperature is? Is it more likely to happen at night or in the morning or in the, the heat of the day? Uh, ultimately, no. It's just, it's a very random event. It's sort of like an earthquake. When it happens, it happens. And sometimes the trigger point when the rock, and the gravity overcomes the power of the friction of the rocks, it falls and that can occur at any time. It might be a lag from the morning, it might be a lag from the afternoon, who knows? But I wouldn't put any particular time of day on it, you know.
Right. Don't go climbing. Don't think climbing at midnight is safer than climbing in the heat of the day. Right. Might even be a lot darker and, and not as safe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, does this show, though, we're talking about the Chief, which is a very popular place for climbers. It's a popular place where people hike and it's a destination, but it's also similar. There's similar rock faces along the Sea to Sky. Should we be looking at those? I know they've done some work to, to netting and such to stop rock falls, but should we be looking at those and potentially more rocks falling onto the highway or in other parts? Yes. And, and all these areas, the more information we have, the better um, idea we can tell people what the risks are. But that's a long-term research and a lot of information and ultimately a lot of resources and financial and too, too. But we're trying to get as much as we can. Most of the time, the geologists give you an idea as to whether it's high risk or low risk just by looking at it, but not any more than that initially. Right. Uh, no. What do they look for then? If, if, if a geologist is able to do that just by looking looking at it, what what specifically are they looking at? All sorts of things, the type of rock. But most importantly along this area, is, it's where there are fracture lines and layers of rock. If you look at Porto Cove, you can see uh, slabs of rock coming down at about a 40-degree angle, and you can see there's, you know, uh, there are layers, not, and those are more likely to slip than others, than a big, massive thing. So they'll, they'll look for weak points as best they can. All right. That's where it's most likely to occur. All right. Well, Paul, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Appreciate your expertise on this, because I know a lot of people were wondering if it's even still safe to go hiking and go climbing there. What would you say to someone? Uh, driving's probably more dangerous. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, take care if you don't stand under cliffs for a long time, ultimately, you know, and areas that you've heard about that have fallen, um, avoid. Uh, that's the best I can say. All right. That is good advice. Paul, we will leave it there. Thanks again so much for coming back on the show. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That is Paul Adam, manager at the Center for Natural Hazards Research at SFU.